Lord, thank you so much again for the opportunity, the reminder to be able to give to you, to, to show our gratitude towards you, to sing to you, to reflect on what you have done for us. You've sacrificed so much. You gave your son so that we might live. I pray, Lord, now that as we look into your word, that we would have that, Lord, uh, in our minds and our hearts, that we remember what you've done for us and to be grateful. And thank you, Lord, for our country. Thank you for uh, those you've put in authority over us. And I pray, Lord, that as we uh, look at uh, these issues today and look at your word, that, God, you would help us to understand it and you would help us to apply it. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as you can see, I kind of dressed for the mood here today. We've got election coming up soon, and I thought it would be good to take opportunity to, to talk a little bit about that. So in doing that, let me just introduce you to a little boy named Johnny. Johnny was somebody who badly wanted a remote control, you know, wireless remote control car. Problem is he didn't have the money for it, so he prayed every night fervently and passionately and consistently oh god give me this give me the money for this car i'll use i'll share it i'll I'll use it for for good my friends can can play with it too so you know he tried in every which way to to just beg god for the money for the hundred dollars to buy it but none came so he thought well maybe maybe i should try another approach here i'm going to write god a letter so he sat down and wrote a letter to God and requesting the $100 for this car. And he put it in an envelope and he just wrote on the, 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 the envelope to God. And so the postal office wasn't sure what to do with it. So they went ahead and sent it to the White House of all places. <laughs> Why, I don't know. But anyway, it did actually make it to the president. The president actually read this request and he was so touched by it that he took 10 bucks out of his uh, pocket, and he put it in an envelope, and he had his secretary uh, mail it to this young man. Well, Johnny was thrilled when he, he got the money, and he wrote a thank you note back to God. And this is what his note said. Dear God, thank you so much for sending me the money. However, I noticed that for some reason you had it sent through Washington, D.C., and as usual, those guys took 90 bucks for themselves. <laughs> Yeah, that's a good one for uh, this time period, isn't it? It kind of goes with what we're hearing in our election. You know, and it, it's in our nature, it seems, to lament governments. Uh, indeed, it can be a challenge to be under governing authorities, right? When we consider things like the taxes and traffic laws, city ordinances, regulations, building codes. Uh, those are near and dear to my heart now as we've got a new house we're trying to remodel. So I'm becoming aware of that part of our governmental system. But, you know, questions come up. Must I obey the letter of the law? What about when the law or the government is unjust? What's, my, what's the purpose of government anyway? What's my responsibility towards government? How do I decide who to vote for? What should I be looking for in a leader? These are important questions. Questions that do need answers. You know, I was told growing up, there are two things you don't talk about, religion and politics. Well, we talk about religion in here all the time, so I figure, why not politics too? But actually, that's not my goal today. I'm not here to give you an opinion on how you should vote. So if you did bring your voter guides, put them away. I'm not going to tell you what boxes to check. But I do want to do my best to try to faithfully explain to you what the Bible has to say about government. For you see, the Bible is highly political. 
You know, God does have something to say on these issues. He does have an opinion in our election. So given what's facing us in nine days, I thought it would be appropriate. to let's talk about what God does have to say about government. So turn to Romans 13. Romans 13. We're going to take a break from our uh, travel down Ephesians, and we're going to look at Romans this morning. Romans 13 is arguably the most comprehensive text on the role and purpose of government and our responsibility to it. So as you're turning there, please stand. I'll be reading verses 1 through 7 from Romans 13. Paul says, Let every person be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, he who resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and those who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will receive praise from the same. For it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath upon the one who practices evil. Wherefore, it is necessary to be in subjection not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. Render to all what is due them, tax to whom tax is due, custom to whom custom, Fear to whom fear, and honor to whom honor. Amen. You may be seated. Well, this section in Romans comes in the um, application portion of the book of Romans. Romans is laid out very similarly to Ephesians. First 11 chapters, Paul focuses on the gospel, on what God has done in our salvation, on the implications of that salvation. And then in chapters 12 and on, he focuses on our response, just as he does in Ephesians. 12.1 is the the hinge verse of this letter, and it starts very similarly as Ephesians 4.1, the hinge verse of that letter, where Paul says, Therefore I urge you, brethren, that therefore again attaches itself to the foundation of the gospel and the truths behind it that he's laid in those first 11 chapters. And then Paul says, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy uh, excuse me, living in holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. So as in Ephesians, Paul says, hey, this is what God has done in your life. This is how he has saved you. This is what salvation means. So here's how you should respond to it. Give yourself continually in service to God as a form of worship to him. And Paul begins with some very practical applications of what that might look like. And just as in Ephesians here in Romans 12, Paul begins with how we treat one another. And looking at uh, exercising our spiritual gifts and how we carry out the one another's among each other. And then when he gets to verse 17, Paul brings up this whole issue. Well, what about when I'm sinned against? What about when I'm treated unjustly? And Paul says, well, don't take your revenge. Never pay back evil for evil. Leave room for the wrath of God. Now, some may ask at that point, well, well, what does that look like? How does God bring about justice? How does God avenge a wrong? Well, the next verses that he points to are Romans 13, 1 through 7, where Paul does give us the answer that God put governing authorities in place in order to do that, in order to carry out justice. And so this morning, we're going to look at three principles from the text regarding government so that we'll understand the role of government and so how that impacts us. 
Paul describes here first government's responsibility, and then he describes the leader's responsibility within government, and finally our responsibility towards government. And that's what our three-point outline this morning will be. First, what to expect from a leader. Second, what to look for in a leader. And third, what to do for a leader. Let's consider the first point. What to expect from a leader. Well, back in Genesis 9-6, was planted the seeds of government as Paul, as, a, Paul, excuse me, as God spoke to Noah after the flood and told Noah, whoever sheds man's blood by, blood, by man his blood shall be shed, for man was created in the image of God. And there he presents this whole principle of justice. God doesn't lay out how that justice would, was to be carried out, but as we see Genesis unfold, we see kingdoms rise up. We see government after government come about. We see that there were many powers that, that were established. Israel herself experienced various forms of government as we see in the Bible. First, she was under Egypt, under Pharaoh. And then a theocracy with God directly leading through Moses. And then the time of the judges. And then a monarchy. And then under a Roman emperor. Throughout history, we too have seen various forms of government, right? We've seen monarchies, dictatorships. We've seen democracies, communist regimes, republics, everything in between. Government has existed for millennia. It's nothing new. But the question is, what is its purpose? What is its purpose? Biblically, what should we expect from our government and its leaders? Well, here in Romans 13, Paul tells us, he unequivocally states that governments are not random, they're not happenstance, they're not people taking opportunity to seize power, but that they have been deliberately set up by the hand of God. A point he makes both positively and negatively. If you look in verse 1, he says there first, there is no authority except from God, right? That means there is no authority except from God. Very simple, very straightforward. No authority in history has risen up without God ordaining it. No government, no ruling power, no leaders. You remember in John nineteen eleven, right? When Pilate was speaking to Jesus and he told Jesus, Do you not realize that I have the power to release you? And I have the power to crucify you. And how did Jesus respond to that? Oh, oh, yes, I, I know you're right. Yes, please be nice. No, Jesus said, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given to you. Right? He's saying, Pilate, you're not in this position because of your ability, because of your skill, because you are good friends with Caesar's nephew. You're not in this position because of anything that is inherent in you. You're in this position because God put you there. There's no authority except from God. And then at the end of verse 1, Paul states the same principle from a positive perspective as he says, those which exist have been established by God. Established here means to put in place, to appoint, to ordain. And established here is a verb that is a participle, which means that it has always been the case. God has always appointed or ordained or established governing authorities. Daniel said in Daniel 2.21, It is God who changes the times and the epochs. He removes kings and he establishes kings. In fact, Daniel was serving under a king, King Nebuchadnezzar, who God needed to make eat grass like a cow for quite a while until he got the point. Daniel 4, God had told him that the Most High is ruler over man, the realm of mankind and bestows it on whoever he wishes. 
Scripture is clear. It is God that decides who will rule. In fact, there's a very interesting uh, illustration of this in Jeremiah 18, where God told Jeremiah the prophet, he said, hey, I want you to go down, take a field trip today, Jeremiah. I want you to go to the potter's house. Now, what takes place at potter's houses? They make pots. Not the kind you smoke, but pots, right? We have to clarify that in our culture today. But, right, so Jeremiah goes down there, and I used to love watching these guys, you know, where they had the spinning wheel and making these clay pots and forming it. And so Jeremiah's sitting there watching this guy, and he, he's making this, this pot, and, and he doesn't like it. So he squishes the clay all up, and he, he starts over again. And it's at that point that God says to, to Jeremiah, he has a message for him. This is what he wanted him to learn and see and communicate to the people. Jeremiah 18, 6 says, Can I not, O house of Israel, deal with you as this potter does, declares the Lord? Behold, like clay in the potter's hands, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. Then God expands it to beyond Israel. At one moment I might speak concerning a nation or concerning a kingdom to uproot it, to pull it down, or to destroy it. If that nation against which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent concerning the calamity I plan to bring on it. Or at another moment, I might speak concerning a nation or concerning a kingdom to build up or to plant it. If it does evil in my sight by not obeying my voice, then I will think better of the good which I had promised to bless it. What's God's point here? It's a message he's trying to communicate. Jeremiah, Israel, everybody in the world, I can do exactly like this potter with the clay with the nations. If there's a nation that I choose to raise up and build up and give authority, I will do that. If there's a nation I choose to destroy or to eliminate or to reduce its authority, I will do that too. Whatever I want to do, just like the potter can do the same with the clay on the spinning wheel. God planted Assyria, for example, raised her up to do his work, one of which was to bring consequences upon the nation of Israel. He later raised up Babylon to do the same, and then he tore them both down. Now, did God confine this kind of activity, His sovereignty over the nations, 2,500 years ago in the, in the ancient Near East? Was that the only time He was active? No, right? Not at all. This is only a picture. We have the Scriptures to show us behind the veil, so to speak, that we can see God's activity in His work. But it has been the case all through human history, right? And God has been the one who has established and removed kings all through time. Dictators, prime ministers, presidents... Senators, governors, mayors, city officials, even building inspectors. All by the will of God. And we must always remember this because it's easy to worry. It's easy to fret. It's easy to get concerned. Oh, what's going to happen? You know, next week or nine days from now, it could all just crumble. And we get so worried and so caught up. And I'm not saying not to be concerned. There are concerns that we have. but, But you need to remember who's in control of all these things. And I know you know this, but sometimes we can act like it's not true. God is in control. And we can take comfort in the fact that it's not only that He's in control, but that He knows what He's doing. He's an all-wise God. And you can imagine like the people of Israel as as Assyria was raised up and Babylon's raised up and they're under these guys' authorities. They may be thinking, what in the world are you doing, God? You're letting this pagan nation come and take us away and aren't we your people? Haven't you promised the Messiah through us? This doesn't look like your plan's going real well, God. We can fret, be concerned. Jeremiah 29, by the way, God tells people of Israel, when you are taken into the land of Babylon... 
You need to promote peace. You need to submit to the authorities when you're there. You need to promote prosperity in the cities in which you live. Interesting. He told them to submit to the governing authorities over them. God has it all planned out. That government, that ruler, that official, they're only in that position by the almighty hand of God. And now this doesn't always mean that God sets the, the greatest or most righteous of rulers in power, does it? In fact, that's often not the case. Pilate was appointed to be governor in Jerusalem at the very time in which the Lord Jesus Christ stood before him. And Pilate, from a human perspective, had the power to kill or to release, right? God's plan was perfect. God's intent was to give a savior to the universe, to to the planet Earth, to us, to be a redeemer. And Pilate was in the right place at the right time. And even though he committed the greatest travesty of justice ever committed, he was also the one that had a hand in our redemption through that. God had it all planned out, didn't he? There are no independent governors. There's no rulers that sneak into power under God's nose. Where you know God again, He never says, "Oops, how, how'd that guy get over there?" Man, I missed that one. What am I going to do now? God never has those words come out of His mouth. And it's interesting. Paul emphasizes the the fact in God's sovereign hand. If you look in verse four of chapter thirteen of Romans, two different times he says in that verse that government is what? How does he describe them? It is a minister of God, a diakonos, a servant of God. And in verse 6, we can see again, Paul calls government a servant of God. There the word is not diakonos, but litorgos, which is actually a word that means servant, particularly or genuinely the connotation is in religious services. So it's interesting. Three different times Paul repeats in these verses, rulers, government is a servant of God. A minister of God. Jeremiah 25.8. God described that King Nebuchadnezzar, who was ruthless, by the way. He described him as my servant. Isaiah 45.1. God described Cyrus, called him his anointed. That's the word Mashiach or Messiah. Which means giving power to one, giving authority to someone. And it may be hard to fathom that God would establish pagan rulers like these, but he did. And he continues to do so to accomplish his will. He put Nebuchadnezzar in place and ended up Babylon punished Israel for Israel's rebellion against God. He put Cyrus in place and he was the one who released Israel 70 years later. And next week or a week and a half from now, God will again arrange authorities here in America for his purposes. Be assured that again, an all wise God is behind that. He is in control and he knows what he's doing. And God does have a purpose, you know, sometimes we, for government. Sometimes we, we kind of wonder, what, what is government for anyway? What does the Bible have to say about that? Well, Paul identifies it clearly here in verse 3. If you look again in Romans 13, he says, Rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Then do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. And now notice, for it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is, again, a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath upon the one who practices evil. Paul clearly states it here. What does God intend for governments to do? Two things, right? It's a servant of God for 
your good and an avenger who brings wrath upon the one who practices evil. Here's the purpose of government right here. God has established government to one, affirm what is right, and two, to punish what is wrong. That's a simple definition. 1 Peter 2.14 says that those who are in authority are for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. Bottom line, God establishes government as an agent for His justice. In fact, notice in verse 4, the ruler is called an avenger. That's someone who rectifies a wrong done. It's the same root word as revenge back in Romans 12.19. And that avenger brings wrath or judgment upon an evildoer. Paul uses that term there, it bears the sword. Now, do you, did shepherds use swords to guide sheep or do you use swords to, you know, write with? What do you use swords for? To kill. This was a terminology that gives the idea it's associated with putting to death. Sword was, again, not used to guide, but to kill. And Jesus reminded Peter of that, right? When they were in the Garden of Gethsemane and Jesus was being taken and Peter grabs a sword and he, you know, he, he doesn't do that because he's going to you know, just wave it around for fun, right? What does he do with the thing? He tries to cut a guy's head off. And he missed, cut his ear. And then what did Jesus tell him? To Peter, don't do that. If you live by the sword, you'll die by the sword. And what he meant with that is if you take life, then your life will be taken. That's going back right to Genesis 9-6. The government has the right to punish evildoers, even if it means taking life. You've heard of Lex Talionis, right? Anyone know what that is? It's a fancy term for an eye, for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, right? Lex Talionis. Well, that is something that uh, can be traced back to the Babylonian law code about 300 years before Moses. But it was also, we first see it in Scripture, in Exodus 21, 24, where that was given by God to Moses for how the people were to be governed. And God had set up a system, a justice code, in which if anyone committed a crime against somebody else, that restitution was to be made. And normally, as you go through Exodus and, and other places in the Torah, that restitution was normally monetary. Jesus quoted Lex Talionis in Sermon on the Mount, right? He said, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, right? He says, love your enemies, right? That was his response. So what was he saying? That Lex Talionis was a problem? That that was actually wrong? And that, that he was condemning the justice code that God had given? Is that what he was saying there? No. What he's talking about is the fact he was condemning individuals for taking the law into their own hands. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth was given so that, again, governments would mete out justice. But that was something, a responsibility given to the government, not to individuals. But people were taking it in their own hands saying, hey, you punched me, I get to punch you back. You say, no, 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 no. You turn the other cheek. I've given government to mete out justice. I want you to notice in this whole discussion, in this passage in Romans 13, in 1 Peter 2, what's interesting here is that the most important purpose that our government has is not our financial well-being. It is our moral well-being. God intends for there to be order in society, for people to be treating one another with civility, with goodness, to be honoring God in their behavior. And if anybody chooses to step outside of that and bring harm to another or potential harm to someone else, then God has given the government the authority and the responsibility to take action. 
In fact, back in Romans 13, that verse 4 where it says, "...as an avenger who brings wrath upon the one who practices evil," that's a direct connection to Romans 12, 19, where God said, when somebody commits a sin against you, don't take your own revenge, but leave room for the wrath of God. And that, that wrath, those consequences come through the authorities that God has placed over us. And that's why we need to affirm, we need to encourage, we need to support those leaders to fulfill the purpose that God has given them, which is to praise right behavior and condemn wrong behavior. How do we do that? Well, we'll get there in a minute. Now, some of you may be thinking, okay, this is, this is kind of pie in the sky. I mean, come on, just how many governments have there actually been in human history who have really done this? Who every, everything that they did was to uphold righteousness and, and to praise good and to condemn evil. How many governments actually did that? Right? Most are corrupt or abusive or morally bankrupt. Right? Because what happens when people usually get the power? The form of government isn't the issue, is it? It's the human heart. People get to power, they end up caring less for those that they are supposed to be governing. And that is true. But that doesn't negate the fact that God still requires and expects our authorities to uphold justice. Just as He expects husbands to love their wives. Just as He expects expects employers to treat their employees with fairness. Just as He expects elders not to lord their authority over the sheep, but to shepherd in humility. Just because the leaders mess it up doesn't mean that God doesn't know what He's doing. And God pays attention very carefully. That nation Babylon that He raised up to judge Israel is one of the consequences. You know what? They abused that authority. They were oppressive and evil and wicked. They did things beyond what God had said for them to do. And so God told them in Isaiah 13 and in Jeremiah 25, I think, it is, He says, you know what? You're done. You abused the power and the, the gracious authority that I gave you. And He took them out in a night. The great mighty nation of Babylon was overtaken in one night. You see, God will deal with rogue authorities in the manner He sees fit. And any government or ruler that has abused their position of power, that's not a reflection on the character of God, is it? Nope. Not at all. That's not God's fault. They are responsible for their sin. Their abuses don't negate God's good intent. They only reveal the fact that we have sinful hearts. The atrocities committed by an authority, they're not an indictment on God, but on man. And again, we need to know what to expect from our leaders. We need to understand and be clear in the fact that God has established government to uphold justice. Because that will affect then what we look for in a leader, right? That will determine what we should be looking for. I mean, should our leaders be good managers? Should they be adept and know how to run a business? Be good at economics? Is it most important that they're good communicators? That they're an expert in foreign policy? Again, just what is a leader's responsibility? What should be expected from them? What do we look for in a leader? Well, that's our second point I want us to look at this morning. And to see God's answer to that, I want you to turn to 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel 9. This is a point in time. It was at the end of the judges. Samuel was the last judge. 1 Samuel 8, the people came to him and said, Samuel, we're tired of judges. We think your two sons are idiots and we don't want to serve them. We want a king. We want to be like the nations around us. They are cool and we want to be cool. So we want a king. Samuel was grieved at this. And God says, you know what, Samuel? They're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. Go ahead. Give them the king that they want. And so God directs Samuel to go to a man named Kish. A man named Kish, actually. 
not the stuff you eat, but that's how it's pronounced, a man named Kish, and this man had a son whose name was Saul. Saul, the first king of Israel. Let me read from 1 Samuel 9.1. I want you to notice, read a couple of verses, how Saul is described. There was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, the son of Zeror, the son of Becheroth, the son of Aphiah, the son of a Benjamite, a mighty man of valor. By the way, too, you know when you read the Old Testament and you go through Hebrew names? Have I told you this before? Do you know how you read them? With authority and quickly. <laughs> that way the person hearing them, they think you know what you're saying. So, and they don't have time to catch and try to read up. So again, the son of Aphiah, the son of Benjamite, a mighty man of valor. See, you didn't know that. I probably mispronounced them all, but you, you weren't aware. Well, mighty man of valor simply means that what it wasn't talking about his ability to fight. Actually, that was uh, the Hebrew words there, the idea of nobility, of wealth, of prominence. And then verse 2 says, He had a son whose name was Saul, a choice and handsome man. And there was not a more handsome person than he among the sons of Israel. He looked just like Ernie McCary. From his shoulders and up, he was taller than any of the people, except for that part, Ernie. They were all, hey, I'm, actually, he's probably taller than me, so I can say that. No, but actually here, right, what's pointed out as we're looking at 1 Samuel, and they're talking about Saul. What was the focus? What was the description here? Right, that he was tall and, and handsome. I mean, if they'd had a Mr. Israel contest, he would have run, won it on the spot. Impressive specimen. Look at 1 Samuel chapter 10. There's a second description given of Samuel. This happened at his coronation ceremony where they had gone through by lot to choose the man that God wanted to be very public and very obvious. He was choosing Saul to be king. And so uh, they, they had performed a, a lot and, and the lot had fallen up on the family of Kish and then on the man Saul. But the problem was Saul wasn't anywhere to be found. God had to point out the fact that, oh, he's over there hiding behind those crates. Not a good sign when your first king is actually too scared to, to, to show up. And this is what's said at that point in verse 23. So they ran and took him from there. And when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upward. Samuel said to all the people, Do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? Surely there is no one like him among all the people. So all the people shouted and said, Long live the king. Samuel says, right, hey, look at this guy. He's one of a kind. Surely kingly material. He's a man's man. What's the focus? What's the, what's the things that are brought out? The author here is making a point, isn't he? Two different times when we're given descriptions of Saul, we're given only descriptions of his appearance, of what he looks like, of his family heritage. But what's missing? His character. Amen, John. His character is missing. His integrity, his moral fiber. I mean, do his height and his look really have anything to do with his fitness to be a king? No, not at all, right? It's obvious. Will his external qualities help him to meet God's requirements to uphold justice? No. But see, this, this, this is what the people wanted. We want a king like the nations. We don't really care if he's good or bad. We don't really care if he's going to praise good and, and punish evil. We just want him to look good. And we can fall into the same trap of wanting the wrong things from a leader. Samuel did. Go to chapter 16. This is interesting. Samuel of all people. 
right? Uh, between chapter 10 and 16, Saul had basically shown himself to be a, a wicked king. He's disobedient to God. Even actually later on, he ended up uh, murdering the priests of Nob for, uh, for harboring David. He was an evil man, disobedient bum. And so God says, Saul, I'm taking the throne from you. I'm giving it to somebody else. And so God sends Samuel on another mission to find the next king, whom we know to be who? Whom? King David, right? And David was the son of Jesse. So God sent Samuel to Jesse's house. Uh, Samuel didn't know who was going to be king yet, but he knew he'd be a son of Jesse. And so he shows up, and this is where Samuel meets Jesse in chapter 16, verse 5. He, that is Samuel, said, In peace I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. He also consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. And when they entered, he looked at Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. So Eliab walks into the door and Samuel's assessment, just looking at him, this must be the guy. I mean, check him out. Really, Samuel? Are you serious? You don't even know this guy. And you assume just by looking at him that he's fit to be a king. Didn't you learn anything from this whole Saul debacle? Then God slaps him upside the head and he says, Samuel, don't look at his appearance. Look at verse 7. Do not look at his appearance or at his height or his stature because I have rejected him. That's not the guy. For God sees not as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Right? There it is. What does God want in a leader? What does he want? Ability, skill, friendliness. God could care less about those things. God wants a man of integrity. And know how we need this message today. Don't be impressed by things that don't contribute to what a leader is supposed to do. That he's supposed to uphold justice. Look for a man of character who will be a servant for good and who will be an avenger of evil. In fact, this is interesting. Do you know the first thing back in Deuteronomy 17, Moses gave instructions and he gave instructions for what a king was to do when he first took the throne. The first thing he was supposed to do was get the law and copy it, make a copy for himself. He was to take the Bible as it was then and to make a copy. And then he was to read that copy every day. By the way, if he was copying the whole Torah, it'd probably take him a couple months. That was his first responsibility in office. And he wanted him to write a copy and to read it every day so that he would be careful to observe what God has said. That was what was a priority for God. Any leader who doesn't take action against the wrong done or, or even endorses it or perhaps even practices it is not the leader God desires. And we shouldn't either. But we can be so much like Israel, can't we? We can be so caught in the things that just don't matter in a leader. We need to stop being enamored or, or hope in other things and what he looks like or how he sounds or how he debates or his economic policies or what his stand is on social issues. These are, I'm not saying these are unimportant, but what is important is what is his character like? What about his integrity? What about, where about, what about where he stands on issues of morality? What about justice for the oppressed, the unborn, victims of crime? What about his position on punishing criminals? Brothers and sisters, these are the things that need our focus. The purpose of government is to protect justice. And you and I have a privilege in this country to have a say about who leads in in voting, right? 
And I want you to ask yourself, as you approach the elections and the various individuals and the propositions and measures, all the things that we're being uh, the privilege to be able to vote on, I want you to ask yourself, what is the criteria you are using to make your decisions? Is it consistent with what God has said is required of a government and of a leader? Is it based on the job that God wants that leader to do or something else? Someone handed me a, a little opinion piece from the Daily News a couple of weeks ago, and it showed a Results from a recent survey that said 20% of Americans, or or close to that number, have uh, no religious affiliation. Over 34% of those 22 and under said that they had no religious affiliation. They didn't connect themselves to any kind of of religious church or anything like that. And it also showed this survey that Protestants make up less than the majority for the first time in U.S. history. And as a result, this article also quoted a a noted atheist, Ronald Lindsay, who gleefully stated this. These numbers tell us that we are closer than ever to realizing a society in which religious dogma has no significant influence on public policy. That is a society based on reason and science rather than myth and superstition. You know, that's a scary statement. And it's scary because I think he's right. Not the myth and superstition part. But just the fact that morality is not going to matter much anymore in this country. That morality is not going to matter much anymore in what our leader, what we look for in a leader. You know, we're in trouble, folks. We live in a nation where spanking a child is frowned upon, but aborting one is encouraged. That's all the more reason that we need to be praying. And we need to be endorsing those on any level of government who uphold justice, who honor good and reject what is evil, who have integrity in themselves. There are a few of them around, by the way. It isn't that the economy, again, isn't important. I'm not saying that. Please don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying the social issues that confront us are of no significance. They, they do mean things. They, they are important. But what is the leader's first priority? What is his first responsibility? What does he think about marriage? That matters. What does he stand or where does he stand on the rights of the unborn? That's important. His views on punishing criminals are significant. His concern for the oppressed and the marginalized is valuable. His own character is an issue for justice is a leader's responsibility. Amen? But what about us? What's our responsibility? What does God call us to in response to the governing authorities? That's our third point this morning, what to do for a leader. Look again at Romans 13.1. Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. What's the command here, brothers and sisters? What is it? Be in subjection, right? Military term, to line yourself under. The idea is to place ourselves under the governing authorities. Titus 3.1 says, We are to be subject, same word, to rulers, to authorities, and to be obedient. 1 Peter 2.13, submit yourself for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority or governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. Peter throws in that one little extra word to submit to every institution, from national to state to local, from police to judges to even building inspectors. Yes, I snuck it in again. Yes, even them. This has been a fun week, by the way. We're remodeling a house and uh, we're having to, to deal with these things. But you know what? We're to submit to the laws of the land. 
But for those who do not submit, Paul says in Romans 13, 2, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God. Ordinance there simply means his arrangement, what he has set up. God has so organized this world that it has structure, right? And what is that structure? Every societal, every human relationship that we have, there's an authority structure, right? It's laid out in many places in Scripture. Titus 2 and Colossians 3, Ephesians 5 and 6, 1 Peter 2 and 3. Talk about all these different authority structures that we are in. Ephesians 5 talks about husbands in authority over their wives, parents over children, elders in the church over the flock, employers over employees, and government over its citizens. And I bring this up because how we submit to those governing authorities is a direct reflection of how we submit to God's authority because He is the one that has put them there, right? In fact, listen, Ephesians 5.22 says, Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. Colossians 3.23 tells employees, Do your work heartily as for the Lord. 1 Peter 2.13, Submit to the government for the Lord's sake. You see, our attitude towards our earthly authorities is a direct reflection of our attitude towards God's authority. Because rebellion against them is rebellion against Him. That's why Paul repeats this point several times, that God's put the authority in your life. God has established it. And again, it's not... That we submit, it's how we submit. If you look right at the end of Romans 13, verse 7, the last couple of things he says is to give honor and respect. 1 Peter 2, 17 says the same thing. Honor the king. You see, it's more than just submitting. It's more than just doing what we're told. It's how we do that. It's the manner in which we submit. Do you do so with honor and respect? complaining, acting disrespectfully, mocking our leaders, calling them names. That's not the kind of submission God desires. You can submit. You can take the ticket. You know, you get pulled over. You get written a ticket. You can take that and pay it. That's submitting. But if you talk rudely to the officer or you complain or you badmouth him later because of the ticket, is that showing honor? How do you speak about the president, members of Congress, governor, the mayor, council members, building code departments. How do you speak about them? Did it again. What do you say? I mean, these things grieve me. The things I hear people say about our governing authorities, about the president, doesn't mean you have to agree with things that are brought up. It doesn't mean that you don't expose sin. John the Baptist did that. But we have to do so in a respectful manner. It is not appropriate to speak evil or to speak rudely or dishonoring to those in authority over us. In fact, Titus 3.1, Paul says this, We are to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient. I've read that before. To be ready for every good deed. And listen how we do that. To malign no one. To be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. Paul's saying here, we don't malign, we don't slander, we don't defile, we don't defame, we don't uh, promote hostility and violence. We're peaceable. We're gentle. Every consideration there is the word humility. We're to be humble. You see the picture here? God glorifying obedience comes through honor and respecting our authorities. So being belligerent, argumentative, fighting, calling names, bad-mouthing authorities, it's not right. It's not right. Give serious thought to what you say about those God has placed in your lives over you. You might think, well, yeah, that's easy to do when they're good authorities, but what about the bad ones? What about wicked leaders, evil governments, oppressive rulers, unjust laws? I mean, doesn't there come a point where they give their right up to be submitted to? 
when they're not doing what God requires of them? I think it's a fair question. If you look at these passages that Peter and Paul wrote, did they give any qualifications about submission? Did they? No, they didn't. And remember, these guys weren't riding from an ivory tower. They weren't in a monastery somewhere in, you know, in peace and tranquility. They suffered unjustly under the governing authorities. And they knew very well. Peter watched Jesus be crucified. He knew authorities were wicked. He'd seen it. He'd experienced. So did Paul. Both of them did. But both of them still said to submit. In fact, as I said earlier in Jeremiah 29, God told the Israelites to submit to Babylon to promote peace and prosperity in that nation. Consider, too, what Peter says in 1 Peter 2.18 in another authority structure with servants and masters. He says, Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. Unreasonable is a word there that means crooked, perverse, dishonest. Peter says, this finds favor, for if the sake of conscience towards God, a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. But if you do what is right and suffer for it and patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. And then Peter gives the example. For you've been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for your leaving you, for leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. Right? Jesus Christ, right? As he was suffering unjustly under the rulers over him, he did not respond in disrespect or dishonor or rebellion. And we might say, well, yeah, because Jesus knew what was going to happen. He knew what was going on. He knew that his father was in control. Yeah, he did. That's the point. God is still in control. He's still using authorities in our lives just as He did in the life of His own Son. And again, the wicked ruler, God used him for the most kind and gracious act in human history. Our redemption through His Son. God will do the same for you in terms of using rulers in your lives to accomplish His will. And sometimes that will hurt. And sometimes that will be difficult. Often that is the case. But we are to submit to our authorities, whether they're just or unjust, whether they're wicked or not. The only time you don't have to do that is if they tell you to stop worshiping God or to stop sharing the gospel. Those are the only two examples were given a scripture where individuals said, I can't do that. You can't tell me to stop worshiping God and you can't tell me not to, to stop proclaiming the name of His Son. I remember a Russian believer who described the many horrible abuses that Christians suffered under the communist regime in Russia. And as he told of the abuses, he said this, If any Christian is ever to suffer imprisonment or punishment, it will never be for anything other than the sake of Jesus Christ. In all other matters, we obey the government. Brothers and sisters, we are nowhere near what these men and women faced in Russia. We're nowhere near what people face today, Christians who are suffering abuse and oppression under wicked governments. And yet this man still says, we submit. May we learn from his example. And one final consideration, and we're we're a little bit over, and I apologize for that, but I want you to turn to 1 Timothy 2. We'll, We'll cover this and then we'll be done. Because there's something we need to remember, our responsibility to government. It is to submit respectfully to the authorities over us 
And there's something else. Paul addresses it before he talks about the church and our responsibilities within the church in 1 Timothy. He talks about our responsibilities to society, particularly the government. He says in 1 Timothy 2.1, First of all, then, I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men, for kings and all who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. What are we called to do here? To pray. Pray for whom? Everyone, particularly leaders. Now, pray for what? What are we to pray for? Look at verse 3. This, that is praying for our leaders, is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. And I know many of you heard this many times before. Pray for your leaders. And so I think some of us may approach that. Okay, I'm supposed to pray for them. I dutifully do it, but I don't believe God's going to answer this prayer. This guy is so bad and evil and wicked. I don't think it's going to happen. I think sometimes we can do that. We need to pray with fervency and believing God could answer that prayer, right? Does he have the power to change hearts? Yes, he changed yours. He can do this. We're to be praying for their salvation because in the end, it is the gospel that matters the most. You know, it is good and right to want abortion to be abolished in this land. But my hope is that people in this land, nobody wants to have one or wants to support one. It is good and right to expose immorality. But my desire is that everybody wants to stop being immoral. My hope is that everyone wants to display crosses, that they want to care for the, for the poor biblically, that they want to treat all ethnicities equally, that they want to promote God publicly. There's a word there I repeated. Did you catch it? Want, right? Our goal is not to make this a Christian nation in its laws, but in its people. Our purpose isn't to advance a biblical moral code. It is to advance a biblical message of sin and a need for a Savior. Martin Lloyd-Jones put it well. He said, The Christian church is not a moral agency. What is she then? She is a regenerating agency. The church does not exist to produce good men. The church exists to produce new men. We can't change this country from the outside in but from the inside out. And it's happened before. Did you know that? There was a revival in the early 1700s that swept across America under the preaching of George Whitfield and Jonathan Edwards. I also believe that Abraham Lincoln may have been saved while he was in office. Can't know his heart for sure, but there was a significant change in how he approached things in the middle of the Civil War. His second inaugural address is, is uh, extremely theologically sound. Is that what you're praying for consistently? Are you praying for the salvation of our leaders? Or only that they would enact laws that agree with your morality? Again, yes, we want laws that are good. We want laws that are right so that we can have a peaceable and quiet life. But above all, we should want Christ to be worshipped in our land. We should want that people to be saved. And morality will be a good byproduct of that, right? So pray for leaders. Preach the gospel. Expose sin. But don't rebel, don't complain, and don't dishonor the leaders. Because remember, they're not the enemy. They need to be delivered from the enemy. And we can bring that about by praying for them, by being a model citizen ourselves, by being a humble servant of Christ, and a practical way is to vote. We have an opportunity 
to stand up for what is right and good, to encourage our government to uphold justice, to praise what is good and to punish what is evil by the process of voting. There's many propositions, many candidates, many measures that we can express, and we have an honor and a privilege to do that. To say, no, this isn't right, or no, this isn't the person that should be in that role because that person is not going to uphold justice. You know, I was talking to a brother not long ago who said he wasn't going to vote because he wasn't thrilled with the candidates. Well, okay, I understand that. But he said, you know, my vote's not going to make a difference between, because God's sovereign anyway. He's going to do what he wants. Is that true? Is he sovereign? Yes. Is he going to do what he wants? Yes. So why do? Why should we vote then? Right? Why pray? Why share the gospel? Why get up out of bed in the morning? Why go to work? Why do anything? God's in control. It doesn't matter. You should be screaming at me right now. Shut up. That's wrong. Why is that? God is in control of all these things, but he works his sovereign plan through means, through you and me. And when we negate our responsibilities to do these things, we're not only disobeying God, but we're also basically hiding behind that, hiding behind the fact that we don't want to take responsibility. But God uses you, and He wants us to pray for our leaders, and He's given us an opportunity to have a choice in the outcome of these elections. And so I would encourage you, don't use God's sovereignty as a smokescreen. You and I, again, we have the privilege to be an influence. And, and the elections give us opportunity to talk to others about the gospel and what really matters, don't they? How are you voting on this or that? Who are you voting for? Why? Now we have the opportunity to present the truth of the Word of God. Voting is one means to expose what the Bible says is wrong and to encourage our leaders to fulfill their responsibility to promote good and punish evil. But remember, again, make your priority the hearts of men, not just their deeds. We can get so caught up in these things and and forget what God has set up government for and what our leaders are called to do. Pray for the souls of those who are lost, especially those in authority, and then be a part of answering that prayer by sharing the gospel. With that, let's pray. Oh, Lord, so much uh, more that needs to be said. I know, Lord, my words are inadequate, but I pray that, Lord, your word has come through, that your call to us to be in subjection respectfully and honorably to those in authority over us. Lord, your call to our authorities, to our government, to uphold righteousness. Lord, we do pray for our president and our members of Congress, our governor, our mayor. Lord, we pray that, God, you would move in their hearts, that you would bring Christians, believers, into their lives who would proclaim the gospel and that you would lift the eyes, lift the the darkness over those that don't know you and save them. God, we know you can bring revival. We know that you can effect change in our country. We would beg that you might show us mercy. We know we deserve different. But please, God, please show mercy. And please, Lord, may you give us comfort in your sovereign hand. Help us to trust in you and and to fulfill our responsibility. We pray these things in the Lord Jesus' name. Amen.